0: Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13 today for our scripture reading. Uh, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things, and to him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. May God bless the reading of his word today. as my prayer. You may be seated. We're in the midst of a series we've been looking at for the last several weeks on the Christian vocation, clearly identified in this passage, our occupation, our calling, if you will, as believers, is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's right there in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We live in a divided world. It's getting worse all the time. It's going to continue to get worse. Ultimately, one side of this division is going to impose its will on the other. That's the way such divisions play out. They have throughout history, and this one will be no different. Uh, We can rest assured as the people of God that ultimately the Bible and God's people are going to prevail. We're on the side of right and on the side of truth and the Bible tells us that though the world and the devil may have their day, there's ultimately going to be a time where God is going to have His day. In fact, it's called, as we've seen in this study, the day of the Lord. Uh, God will have His day. And God's truth and God's people are indeed going to ultimately win out in this task. I also try to let you know this is not something new that we've invented in the last uh, 50 years or even the last uh, uh, 10 years Um, But it was going on in Ephesus long ago as the city was deeply divided. And uh, the culture around the church at Ephesus was in a way a threat to them, even as they were trying to reach them with the gospel. But there were those on the other side who were determined to put a stop to that and to put a stop to their Christian faith and message. But it even goes back further than that. In the Old Testament, long ago, God's people, Israel, were surrounded by other peoples and nations, and they were committed to idolatry, to a fundamentally different view of the world, and a fundamentally different way of living and life. And there was a constant threat for God's people, Israel, to give in to, to be influenced by these other nations round about them. Oftentimes, it was more than a threat. It became their reality. There was a king in Israel named Ahab. He went up to the area we know today as the area of Phoenicia, uh, but at that time it was called Sidonia. And he married uh, the daughter of the king of Sidonia. Her name was Jezebel. Her uh, father's name, the king, was Ethbaal. She was, of course, an idolater. Uh, Their patron gods and goddesses were Baal and Ashtoreth. Jezebel made it her business when she became queen of the nation to stamp out the worship of Jehovah. And she was almost successful. But God raised up in that day of darkness and depravity a man named Elijah. He appeared out of nowhere. with the power of God on his life, and he made a simple declaration. There'll be neither rain nor dew for three years, except by my word. Do you remember the story? Three years would go by, and sooner or later there had to be a showdown, and there was in this case, and the showdown took place on Mount Carmel. And you remember what Elijah said when he got up there. He cried out to the people of Israel and said, How long? He said, Do you halt? between two opinions. That's the way the uh, King James puts it. I put it up in the New King James. How long will you falter between two opinions? Some of them have it Hobble between two opinions. Some of them have it, how long will you limp between two opinions? It is a description of people who really can't make their mind up. You know, am I left or am I right? Am I going this way or am I going that way? Am I in the middle? And the fact is that a person like that is not committed to either side. And that's exactly where Israel was. They were too good to be bad and too bad to be good. They were too worldly to be godly and too godly to be worldly. They were too much for Baal to be for God and too much for God to be with Baal. And Elijah said, you need to stop. <laughs> you would have to make a choice. One side or the other. And you know what the people said? It was a long, quiet spot. Well, you know how the story played out? 400 prophets of Baal were killed, fire came down from heaven. You would think there was a mighty revival, there wasn't. The fact was that the nation was divided. And there were too many people in Israel who were just uncommitted. They were they wanted all of the devotion, all the blessings that came from being people of God, but they wanted what the Baals had to offer too, and that was some evil, nasty, ugly, worldly, sinful stuff. People in the middle like that are bombarded from both sides. Both sides, you see, want them to make a choice, to make a commitment, to declare themselves one way or the other. This is always the way of the world, And it is always the way of the people of God. It was that way in ancient Israel. It was that way in Ephesus. It's that way in Cabot, Arkansas today. That's why this chapter is so pivotal for us to consider because it calls us as the people of God to fulfill our calling. And that calling is to keep, to preserve The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In our text today, it is called the unity of the faith. That is not two different unities. It is one and the same. The unity of the Spirit is the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith is the unity of the Spirit. That's important for us to remember because the Spirit of God does not lead you in one direction and me in another direction. If I'm going this way and you're going that way and both of us claim to be following the Spirit of God, there's two possibilities. Either number one, we're both wrong, (laughs) or, or, or number two, one of us is right and one of us is wrong. We can't both be right. That's not possible because the Spirit of God is not divided. And he is not going to lead you to believe that one thing is right and me to believe that that is wrong. And it doesn't matter how many denominations there are in the United States. It doesn't matter how many people are claiming that God is leading them to be this or that or do this or that. Uh, The fact is that the Spirit of God is not divided and he by his very name is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. You see, this is not... Two different kinds of things that we isolate one from the other. The unity of the Spirit is the unity of the faith. Today's Christian culture has tried very hard to manufacture an artificial unity. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to fail. Sooner or later, it has to. You see, we're trying. Oh, I say we are, we're not. Let me just be clear on that. When I, I say we are, I'm talking about American Christianity. Is trying to find some place of unity where what we believe and what we think is right and wrong is just going to be declared as irrelevant, and we'll just all get together and sing songs and worship and and have some kind of sermon. I'm telling you that can't work forever. It gonna, it's going to come back to the Elijah principle. How long do you halt between two opinions? It's going to be one side or the other. You've got to get on one side or the other. And I want to be on the Lord's side. And the Lord's side, is, and I'm not asking God to come join my side. The Lord's side is determined by what is the truth. And the truth is revealed to us in God's word. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Well, There's incredible pressure on us from without and and from within the Christian community. From without, from those who don't know Christ, from within, from those who do, uh, but who are trying to go in a lot of different directions, there's incredible pressure then for us to, to give in, to cave, to go along with whatever the world has decided we need to go along with today. And against all of that, as he did to the church at Ephesus, Paul calls us to the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. And he goes on to use three key descriptors of this unity in this passage. And I want you to see them very clearly this morning. Uh, First of all, he calls this the knowledge of the Son of God. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So the, the first way that we are going to describe this unity of the faith is by the fact that it is a faith, a belief system, that is based on the knowledge of who Jesus is. Long ago, Jesus asked that very question. It is recorded in three of the four gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, it's in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 15. He said to them, that's his, his disciples, who do you say that I am? That came on the heels of him asking them, who does the world, who do men say that I am? And, and men could give a variety of answers then, and they still give a variety of answers today. Who is Jesus? Who do men say that Jesus is? But the fundamental issue for our faith today is what do we say? Who do we say Jesus is? Who do we believe Jesus is? Let me tell you something. Who you believe Jesus is makes all the difference and the kind of life that you're going to live. It makes all the difference. Who is Jesus to you? Well, I'm glad to be able to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. I choose those words very carefully because that is, of course, the confessional truth of Christianity. And it is what Jesus, or what Simon Peter said when he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's what Paul described in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 when he said, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those in earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the key issue of the Christian faith, the knowledge of who Jesus is. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord this morning, you don't know Him. And you need to. I got good news for you. Jesus Christ loved you. He didn't just shout and stand in heaven and shout it over the battlements of heaven. He came down to this world and died on a cross for you and for me. He didn't... When they buried him, he didn't stay in the grave, he rose again. And he gives out a simple message whoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. You can have the truth of that come alive in your life this morning if you'll just receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. How long do you halt between two opinions? Well, I kind of like Jesus, especially at Christmas time. Who is Jesus to you? The unity of the faith, you see, is all about who Jesus is. That is one question that we have to answer correctly. Because if Jesus is Lord, if He is God, if He came to make the invisible God invisible, if Jesus continues in this world and is in you and in this church by the Holy Spirit, if Jesus really does save to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him, if He works in His apostles and prophecy and to give us the New Testament, if He gave us His Word, His revelation, and that is the Bible, that changes everything about the way you and I approach life and living. Though widely popular, the question, what would Jesus do, is not a biblical one. And I'm not, I'm not preaching against it. If you got a, a WWJD bracelet today, don't take it off and hide it from me thinking I'm against that, okay? It, it's not a bad question. I'm just telling you it's not the question and it's not a Bible question. That question actually comes back from a book of fiction written by a man named Charles Sheldon back around the turn of the century. He preached a series of sermons where he described what would happen if everybody in their life would ask themselves the question before they did anything. What would Jesus do? And that's the book In His Steps, subtitled What Would Jesus Do? by Charles Sheldon. If you've never read it, I'd even encourage you to get it and read it. You can probably download it for free on the Internet by now. In his steps, what would Jesus do? The problem, you see, though, that we have with that question is that everybody is going to answer that question their own way. We make up our own mind about what would Jesus do. What would Jesus do? You see, and Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You see, the biblical way to frame this question is, Is not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? And what Jesus did was died for you and me so that we could have eternal life. And in light of that, when we ask ourselves, then what did Jesus do? We remember that I am not my own. I am bought at an incredibly high price. And it's not my right then to decide what I want to do, but I have to live for our Lord Jesus Christ because He died for us. We're compelled to live for him and not for ourselves. The knowledge of who Jesus is is the first thing, first way that he describes the unity of the faith. The second way that he describes the unity of of the faith is that it is one of complete maturity. Uh, We are come to the knowledge of the Son of God, and he says, to a perfect man. So we all come to the unity of the faith, uh, and that's further described as the knowledge of the Son of God. Then, secondly, it's further described as being a perfect man, a perfect man. Uh, now, we may look at, at a baby and call it a perfect birth because there are two hands, feet, eyes, and ears, but of course, uh, that's not always the case. Many things can affect the birth of a child, and those things will invariably affect the life that that child will live. But if it is indeed a perfect birth, and we can say that, uh, then even then, that baby is going to have a lot of growing to do, a lot of learning to do, a whole, 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 whole lot of changing to do. And really, that is a never-ending process because life and living is all about changing. At least I hope it is not an ever-ending process. I, I want to always be growing. I want to always be learning. I want to always be learning more about Jesus about changing those things about myself that are less like Him, changing into things that are more like Him. I don't want that process to ever stop in my life. I don't want it to ever stop in your life either. That's a whole lot of what it means to be alive, is to be learning and growing and changing to become more like Jesus Christ. One passage uh, has this as being uh, one of perfect manhood. One of perfect manhood. Another has it as uh, one who is fully grown or or fully uh, matured. All of those things are are very good ideas. It's not, though, just about being a full-grown man. It speaks simply of an adult, (laughs) what we call adulting today. You hear that a lot. It is somebody who's fully grown, somebody uh, who is able to provide for themselves, to pay their bills, to live responsibly, ultimately to take care of their families. And it's all about the fact that we have learned that we're not living for ourselves, that it's not about me, 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 me. uh, But I'm living for, first of all, for Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And then secondly, I am living for others, our children and our family. So the unity of the faith in is described first of all as being the knowledge of who Jesus is. The unity of the faith in is described secondly as being a person of complete or perfect uh, maturity, complete maturity. We're uh, spiritually speaking, we're adulting well. The third way, then, that it is described is what I'm going to call a measured maturity. And that's right there in the text, to the measure, he says, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, when I was a child growing up, uh, the nearest town to us uh, of any size was Shreveport, Louisiana. I was born there in Willis-Knighton Hospital. Uh, My pediatrician uh, that gave birth to me was Dr. Strain, and he was my doctor for the first 18, 19 years of my life. And if I got much of a cold or a runny nose, uh, we were making a trip to Shreveport. I can tell you that was going to happen. It happened a whole, whole lot. We have a bike, bike wreck. We were on our way to Shreveport. All kinds of things we would end up down at the doctor's office. Now, there was one thing that happened at the doctor's office that I liked. And that was when they made you step up on that little stand thing, and they'd run that pole up, and they'd put that flat spot down on the top of your head and measure how tall you were. And the reason I liked that is because I was a growing boy, and I wanted to see how much I'd grown in the week or two since I'd been at the doctor (laughs) the last time. (laughs) Now, sometimes it was longer than that, and I had grown some. And, of course, there's that uh, growth spurt that we all had uh, about seventh grade or so, when, or fifth grade or sixth, you know. And it was just so exciting. How much have I grown this week? Now, you know, I'm much, much older, and, and I still go to the doctor. And, you know, you still step up on that same thing. Uh, but they don't bother to measure my height anymore. <laughs> they're still measuring me. Uh, but they're measuring, of course, how much we weigh, how much we weigh. And it doesn't matter whether your doctor has one of those old-fashioned deals that's got that sliding weighty thing over there that, uh, you know, kind of balances in, or whether they got one of those new and improved digital versions. We all know one thing about the doctor's office scales. They're bad off. (laughs) Amen? They weigh you heavier than you weigh anywhere else. I'm not sure why that is, but we know that the doctor's office scales are bad off. The point being this morning, all our life, they've been measuring how much we grow. There was a time when we were excited about it. Now, not nearly so much. Uh, You know, because what they want to see, and you all know this, is, is, you know, there's an ideal weight that is associated with how tall we are. And for how much I weigh, I can tell you right now, I need to be seven foot three inches tall. (laughs) I'm trying to fix that, but I can tell you right now that growing taller isn't working for me. (laughs) So we're going to have to do something else. The measure, the measure. Of how much we grow. You see, the ideal in the Christian life is established by Jesus Christ. He was the one who set the standard, who tells us, shows us how to live. The real standard, then, in the Christian life, the ideal in the Christian life, is is not just how well we're doing at being adults, but how well we're doing at being like Jesus. Are we growing up? Are we maturing? Are we adulting well spiritually? Are we becoming more like Jesus? And he, in fact, will go on to relate to several characteristics of kids uh, that we as believers need to grow out of. He says, if you be no more children, uh, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, and he speaks then about the changeable nature of children. Uh, and... <clears throat> if we are really not growing as we should, then one of the things that that is going to show up as is a tendency to jump on every fad of teaching that comes along. There's an excitement that comes when we learn something new. There's an excitement that comes when we go into a new place. But that excitement quickly fades away. Something else, and there's always a new book, and there's always a new series. There's always something that tells us this is the thing we've all been looking at for all this year. And it's going to help us in, do whatever it is that we want to do, and stop doing whatever it is that we want to stop doing. It's the key. It's the key thing. We've discovered it. Nobody else has seen it before. Uh, Christianity has always had this. It was going on in the days of Paul. Paul says, I I don't want you like that anymore. You need to grow out of that. I remember one Christmas season, I wanted a train set. I thought that it would be the greatest thing ever. And behold, I had one under the Christmas tree that Christmas morning. It was electric powered. And Dad and I began to work to put that thing together. We set the locomotive on the track hooked up the other two cars. Uh, it had a little chamber. You could put water in on top of the locomotive, and after a few moments, it would begin to kind of make a small amount of steam. It had an on and off switch that looked like the old switches that they used when they manually changed the tracks so that the train would go on one track or the other. Uh, it was made in a circle, only slightly larger than this pulpit. I can stretch my arms. It was about this big round. Train's on the track, put it in the water, turn on the switch, on, off, on, around, and around, steam. There was a button you could push, and if you push it hard, it would kind of make a little sound, but I kept wanting the woo, but I found out real quick you had to make the woo sound by yourself. Woo, I still know how. I thought this was the greatest thing ever. It went round and round, on, off, made a little steam. Woo! After about an hour, I was done with the thing. I hope mom and dad didn't pay a lot of money for it. Although, if we still had the box, it could probably sell for a lot on eBay because there's a market for those things today. I guarantee you we could get more than what they paid for it now. But I'm not... Guaranteeing that my parents don't still have that train set in their attic because they kept everything. And that's and I are carrying on that tradition. <laughs> Children are quickly excited about something that they think they'll die without. They've got to have it. That's what I've lived for it. But then as soon as they get it, They're done with it and on to something else. American Christianity is awash with this today. Fat after fat. Paul says, don't be that way. Don't be that way. Instead, don't be just carried about for every new Bible teaching that comes around. Somebody that's got the next riddle. Somebody that's found a code. Everybody else has missed something. There's always bandwagons. Don't do that. And it's not just in the Christian faith, but it's also in the world side, the culture changing so rapidly that we absolutely can't even keep up with what's politically correct today is not going to be politically correct next week. And what I can say now, I'm not supposed to say next time. <sighs> Churches and denominations are being torn apart trying to keep up with all this. Against it all, the Bible puts forth a simple plan. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace Grow up, mature in Christ. Know who Jesus is. Grow, make sure that you're growing to become more like Jesus because he sets the standard of our maturity. And then we're not going to be blown about and tossed around by every weight wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. But instead, we can continue on in the love of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to close out, and we're going to return to this passage next week. But I want to close out just by reading this verse. This is what he says. Don't be more, no more children. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, may I grow up in all things into him who is head, Christ. As you go on in the passage, as we'll go on in the passage, we'll see that Paul makes a number of applications of this unity. He's going to discuss how it looks in our home life. He'll discuss how it looks in our work life. He'll discuss how it looks in our church life. It's, it's, it's a, a lot of things that he applies this unity of the faith and how it affects the way that we live in a very, very practical way. But it all comes back to that one question, who is Jesus? Uh, I was a Paul Harvey fan for many years, God rest his soul. He has moved on to glory. Some of you said, I've never heard of Paul Harvey, I understand. It's the rest of the story, look him up. Paul Harvey told a story about four college students that missed their final exam in their class. They were late to class. They went to their professor, begged their professor, "Ma'am, please let us take the test. We don't want to fail the class. Please let us take the test. It's not our fault that we missed it today. We had a flat tire on the way in when we went to get the tire off. We couldn't get it off. It was frozen on there. We had to get somebody to come by with a cheater bar, finally flagged them down. We were able to get the tire on. We're here. We're sorry. We're late. Please let us take the test again. The teacher didn't say anything. He said, go to the four corners of the classroom. She put each one of them, he said, facing the classroom wall and went by and wrote them an, a question out, laid it down, went to the next one, laid it down, went to the question, laid it down, went to the next one, laid it down. If you four people can all answer this question correctly, then I will let you take the test. What do you think the question was? Of course, which tire was flat? If they answered it right, they all passed. If they answered it wrong, they all failed. In the Christian life, you see, the one question that we have to answer correctly is who is Jesus? Jesus. If you miss that question, it doesn't matter how many other tests that you may pass or fail, how many other things that you may succeed at or fail at, how many other great things you may accomplish in life, but if you miss this, you miss it all. Because this is what not only determines the life that you live, it is what determines the eternity that you will experience. Who is Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that changes everything. Let's stand together.